There couldn't be anything more tailor-made for me. And it's so lucky that I somehow was able to find this community and find the, the great training and just to connect all those meaningful parts of my life. It's not something I ever could have pictured. From the Outreach Department at the Texas School for the Blind and Visually Impaired, this is A Sense of Texas. Here's your host, Emily Coleman. Welcome to A Sense of Texas. I'm Emily Coleman. I had never heard about any kind of audio description until I was a beginning TVI teaching a summer camp and sat down with a bunch of kids to watch Toy Story 3. And I didn't even know that was a language option that you could pick on movies. Then, coming to TSVVI a couple years ago, it was the first time I had even thought about live audio description during a theater performance. And while watching our spectacular spring play, I noticed employees with headsets feeding information to students and was impressed at how thought out accessibility was at our school. Still, I never once thought about theater in New York or Boston or who could be employed providing audio description for live performances until our low vision specialist, Dr. Cindy Bockefer, introduced me via email to Jill Robin Silver. Jill went to grad school with Cindy and provides descriptive audio narration for theater productions in the Boston area. Jill has shared on her role, I love to analyze the visual elements of a production and provide insights into not just the what is happening on stage, but also the why to convey how the Huntington Theater's incredible team of designers illuminate themes and ideas in the text and help bring them to vivid life. Jill was part of our blindness education community and then found an even greater purpose connecting that career to her own expertise. Wait till you hear not only about live audio description, but also where she does her job from and the various opportunities to work within her field. I used to work in theater when I was younger, so I guess I've kind of come full circle. I started out in theater and Never really imagined doing anything else, but then I ended up working with the VI community. I became a teacher of students with visual impairments, and then I worked for a time as a Braille transcriber at National Braille Press. And then when I had my baby, I knew I wasn't going to go back to the to the Braille Press or being a TVI. I decided to just look at like the employment opportunities at um, WGBH Boston. I just thought, oh, maybe I could get some kind of admin position in that like masterpiece or something. I don't know really yeah. what I was thinking, but I, <laughs> I look and I have a one of my best friends from high school actually works there. And I when I first heard about audio description, she had mentioned that GBH does that, but she had heard that they had moved that whole operation out to LA. So I was looking and I saw that Media Access Group was looking for describers here in Boston. I was like, oh, that sounds pretty perfect. And I had no, you know, background in that type of work specifically, but I I knew about description just from being in the VI profession and also because my husband is blind and so we are consumers of the, that service in our personal life. I, I applied for it, much to my shock. I got, I got the job. Um, I had to go in and do some writing on the spot. They, they would show me clips of some programming, and I had to 
to write some and I don't know, it was a whole process and interviewed and I was hired and I thought, oh, <laughs> I bet no one else applied for this job. <laughs> I was trying to find, like, uh, maybe, you know, this job has been up for a long time and no one knew what it was and no one thought to apply. But it turns out they actually did have quite a few <laughs> applicants. I oh. found out later that they, yeah, they did have a lot of people they were looking at. So I was very fortunate to be hired there. So Media Access Group used to be the only game in town and they really invented it. The technology and the, the art of that type of writing. But by the time I got there, it was really only for like seasonal part-time work. This was back... Um, I'm going to say in like 2012, 2013. And they needed help with um, Downton Abbey and a few other of their programs during, you know, a certain type of time of year. There were really only two other women um, doing it. But those two women had been there for a really long time and they're absolute pros. I mean, they're mm. so, so good. <laughs> and they really created a whole style manual. And so they trained me i did that for a few seasons and one of my co-workers also worked in theater she did that on her own time when i heard that i was very interested and i told her how much i would really love to learn that with an eye towards doing that at some point after gbh sort of ran its course they started losing their funding they couldn't have as many people on staff anymore i went up to her and i said could you please train me to do theater I think this, I really am so interested and I think now is like a perfect time to get into it and she was like absolutely oh. and the um theater community and in, in Boston of describers in Boston is yeah. pretty small so she sort of showed me the ropes and she connected me with a colleague and friend of hers who did a lot of it and really partnered me with her. I worked with her for a couple of seasons. Yeah, so that's how I got into <laughs> theater description. It's so interesting how you were in theater and then ended up yes. in the VI field and then ended up back in theater back doing in. VI work. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's really the best possible yeah. possible outcome. There couldn't be anything more, I think, tailor-made for me, for my interests and my skills. And it's so lucky that I somehow was able to find this community and find the, the great training and, and actually be in a position to jump in to it, just to connect all those meaningful parts of my life. It's not something I ever could have pictured. How do you think getting the TVI training has helped doing this kind of work? Some of the audience members are former students of mine. And so like, <laughs> I feel very, very comfortable like inviting them to shows and then picking their brains afterwards about what worked and what didn't. I think there's a, an element of trust that sort of goes both ways. Tell us about the process of audio describing, even some of the major differences between pre-recorded describing and doing it live. I mean, I know pre-recorded theater description does exist. Pretty sure that's what they do on Broadway. The last time we went to a Broadway show before the pandemic, we did get a headset for my husband. From my understanding, it didn't really, there wasn't much of it. So I don't know how much he got out of that. But for TV... Yes, there's a big difference. You just have to really put yourself in the spaces between the dialogue and there's usually not much space at all. And it's all about the timing and just getting in what you can in a few seconds pause between dialogue. And then if you have some more time, yes, you can get into some of the costuming and, and other things. Theater, it's live theater is a living thing and every performance is different. So 
you have to go with the flow. You might have to change some things on the fly. I mean, definitely it's all pre-written and really well thought out. And you write a script for yourself. You know, none of it is off the cuff. I don't, I mean, as far as I know, I don't know anyone who does anything off the cuff without writing a really, you know, full script beforehand. But maybe there are people who do that, but Mm -hmm. not in Boston, as far as I know. And um, so in that respect, it's the same. Like you spend a lot of time beforehand writing, but you might have to make adjustments in the moment, depending on how, you know, what's happening timing wise or something is different than it was when you saw it. And But also you get to um, go more in depth and describe costumes and sets and other things like that you might not have a chance to do in a TV show. Yeah. So are you typically, uh, do you typically stand backstage or, or how does it, where are you positioned? Every venue is different, but my home venue, it's called the Huntington Theater. And I love that setup because we are up. I mean, I have to climb a ladder up. This is, this is where my past theater training came in really in handy because I was so used to like going up into the flies and like walking on catwalks and I actually have to do that at the Huntington I have to put everything in my backpack and then I have to wear it's pitch dark I have to wear like either lighted gloves or a light lighted hat (laughs) and climb up of like a steep vertical ladder and then like go and then you're above the stage on this like you way up high in the ceiling like it's really awkward but I don't mind it at all I kind of I kind of dig it but uh, some of my colleagues aren't that thrilled at them about this particular setup but I love it and then we're in a booth high up above the stage no one knows we're there it's really just us the describe like we have our own little mini booth up there mm-hmm. and no one can hear us no one can see us to me that's so helpful that it's just me speaking into the microphone and it's pretty hard to get too self-conscious or nervous when you're just like floating up there you know by yourself and it's always done in um, pairs there's a primary describer and a secondary describer and sometimes the other describer will be up there with you but usually they leave and then you leave when it's their turn but in other theaters it's different you're in a crowded tech booth if you're lucky (laughs) you're in a you're in a crowded tech booth and like a stage management is back there and like lighting people might be back there and you sort of have to be mindful of people coming and going. And they. I've had a, situations where I was in theaters that didn't really have the setup for it. And there was one time where I was like, basically, and not just behind the audience. And I had to speak into this bag you put over your, your mouth to like muffle the sound and just hope no one's too annoyed by you and I was called in to fill in for someone and I was it was just behind the audience there was just like a plexiglass well I guess what now looks familiar like a COVID yeah. shield this was, this was a couple COVID years ago shield. and it's just like a shield that didn't wall me off from anyone and I was I was like behind the tech booth but like behind people in the just in the back of the house where like standing room would be right so people are walking back and forth behind me and like being all like oh what are you doing and like (laughs) and then like during intermission like when I'm supposed to be doing my spiel people are like you know the lights are on and really people are walking behind me and like you know ask me what I'm doing and that was really really nerve-wracking and I mean for the people who do it there you know normally they're used to it and it's fine but like the whole setup that the technology they used was different and and just being in the middle of the, the basically the audience 
uh, really threw me and it wasn't my favorite. Yeah. Um, so if you're lucky, you're in a tech booth and that's how it is most of the time. Now you mentioned that there's a, usually two people providing the audio yes. description. So how often do you switch out? Right. So there's um, the primary describer and the secondary describer. And the secondary describer goes, um, does a pre-show before the show starts. That's what I usually do. I've done both. But everything that the um, audience is going to need to know, that the listeners are going to need to know before the first act, you set up. And then you go again, you hand it off to the primary who does the um so like the minute by minute during the show itself. And then the secondary goes back in intermission and sets up everything that the audience is going to need to know for act two. And then the um, primary finishes out the show. It's almost always a tag team. The secondary does more of describing the sets, the costumes, the appearance of the actors, even like setting up the stories, not giving away what's going to happen, but, you know, pointing out things they might need to keep in mind at certain parts of the show. And the primary describer might say, like, I need you to, you know, mention this and this and this because that will make my job easier. So it is a collaboration. Do you know an infant or toddler in Texas who may have a vision problem? They may qualify for free services. Support from a teacher of students with visual impairment may increase a child's success in school and life. Call 817-740-7530 to find out more. That's 817-740-7530. How do folks get access to audio description? Do they have to let the theater know in advance typically, or how does it work, at least the places that you work? Nowadays, almost every theater offers it I would say and they try to publicize it you know they put it on their website they send out emails and they try to let the community know they'll let community centers or schools or teachers know that this is happening it's always a good idea to call a theater and just ask if it's happening when it's happening because it's usually only two dates for each production Mm -hmm. sometimes one well sometimes more it varies but Like at my home theater, there's two performances plus a student matinee that have the description. And then once they get to know you and you're sort of on the list, then they will regularly sort of update you. It's always good to call and ask because that would let a theater know that there's interest in it. And if they don't have it, then they can get it. Museums and theme parks, it's pre-recorded. And so you would need to go to like guest services and you know, hope someone there can point you in the right direction and set you up with that. For cruise ships, some of it might be pre-recorded, but a couple of my colleagues would get called, uh, like like someone was going to be on a cruise, and they would call the cruise line and say, hey, I'm, you know, I have a visual impairment. I would like audio description for the, you know, your performances. And then they would have to call a professional and fly them out to be on the ship and, you know, make sure they were there just even for one patron or a small group of patrons. How do you get on that (laughs) list? I know, right? (laughs) That sounds awesome. Yeah. In fact, one of the times where I had to take over for my colleague who was a primary is because she got called to um, last minute to go on a cruise ship. 
Wow. Who knows if people are going to be cruising anymore after. Oh, right, right. Yeah, but if you are, I would I would say for sure, call up the cruise line and see what they have mm-hmm. to offer. Almost every major motion picture released in a theater has it nowadays. Like yeah. everyone, for every show. So you go up to the desk at the movie theater and they'll set you up. But for theater, you know, maybe some smaller theaters or community theaters might not have it. But it's always worth yeah. asking. But, you know, more, the, the major regional theaters now, they yeah. pretty much have it nowadays. So. Do you ever listen to audio description on TV or through any of the streaming apps? <laughs> and do you think any do a good job <laughs> or do a particularly good job? Netflix does. Okay. I've heard Disney does a pretty good job. Oh, Yes. But I think even the networks, um, from the little I've heard, I think they're they're fine. Like <laughs> GBH used to be the gold standard, and mm. and the quality at other places used to be sort of hit or miss. But I think most of it is really professionally done, from what I from what I know now. You and I had talked a little bit before about just like the day to day audio descriptions, and you know as. As the parent of a blind child, I always struggle with giving too much or not enough information. So do you have any suggestions for providing audio description just in day-to-day lives? More is better. I don't think mm. you really need to struggle with too much. Okay. I think it, it could be, and very often is, the opposite in theater or film or mm. TV. I mean, my husband would rather know more than less. Okay. I suppose he tells you if you're talking too much anyways. My husband tells me... <laughs> <laughs> well, I've never, I've never had that problem. It's always the opposite. Like oh. he, he'll tell me, he'll ask me like, what's, what's here? What's there? And I'm like, it's, it's awful because I'm supposedly a professional. And so, but it's different when you're like out in the wild and like the, you're not, you know, pre-writing anything and you're just sort of taking it as it comes. And all the while you're not na- like navigating with like a toddler or something and trying yeah. to, you know, like keep your eye on her and then like, he wants to know what's happening and I can't like access that part of my brain quick enough to I'm finding it harder and harder to be a good describer in real life in real time now actually frankly (laughs) yeah (laughs) I'm not proud but I think that's how it is like I'm just trying to I don't know navigate through the snowbanks and keep an eye on our kid and (laughs) figure out where we're going. And then on top of that, I'm supposed to like, (laughs) like, well, you're not singularly focused when you're out in the wild, as you say. (laughs) I'm not, but at least, you know, he, he can, you know, tell me what he wants to know. And then I can, you know, it's like, like now, you know, our daughter's older. So definitely part of my brain is freed up yeah. and not always constantly like worried about her survival from second to second right. and if we're if we're driving like I try I do try to give color commentary and or, or just things that I don't know I just realized that sometimes like even with all my training and even having been married for quite a while now I think I still make assumptions like oh he already knows that or oh that's not worth mentioning and then I'll offhandedly mention something and I'll be like oh wow I had no idea that that was a thing and I'll be like oh sorry like so like we have satellite radio and like when a song comes on you know how there's like a graphic with the album cover of you know whoever is playing and so like I just mentioned like like oh wow like so-and-so looks so young in that picture and he's like what picture what are you talking about I'm like oh that the album cover for the song we're listening to he's like oh that's that's a thing I had no idea 
I was like, yeah, every song that comes up, but like, you know, it never occurred to me like to point yeah. that out in the past, you know, so yeah. I don't know. I'm not the best. But. <laughs> uh, well, you said you've been married a long time, so you can't be the worst. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Jill, if somebody wanted to get involved in this work, where would they even start? Yeah, org has some resources online where they can direct people interested in learning about it and learning about training. And also, I think NLS, National Library Service, has a mm. section on their website. A really good thing to do, though, is to find someone in your area who does it Yeah, and talk to them. Attend a performance and then talk to the scriber after the show, and they would be absolutely thrilled mm-hmm. <laughs> to talk to you. Or have the theater's education department or whoever you know, coordinates that, get you in touch with some of the describers and then just contact them. Maybe they could train you themselves or they know who train, you know, let you know who trained them or just introduce you to the people you would need because you're going to meet them anyway, probably, because no matter where you are, it's a small community. A lot of theaters now are wanting to do outreach and want to train new people, especially people of color. So I know one theater up here, like, specifically tasked their describer with, like, doing outreach and finding people and training people that they could hire. So I would say that's probably the best way. There, you know, definitely Google resources online, but anyone can call me at any time. (laughs) Like, you can definitely get my, you know, information and I could try to help however I could. But I'm sure any describer would be more than happy to talk to anyone who's interested in learning about it. Before the pandemic, um, my colleagues here in Boston and people throughout the country were trying to sort of formalize the process and make um, sort of best practices and and have conferences and have training sessions. That was sort of well in the works. And I think in D.C. every year there is a... um, there's like a certification or some kind of a training conference that I was never, never able to go to because it's always like during my kids' February vacation. We have theater productions at our school and uh, we do offer described audio. So mm-hmm. do you have any tips to share? My biggest tip would probably be that people are more interested in costumes than I realized. So when you're writing your costume description, know that that's going to be particularly appreciated. Hmm. And that's not something I realized until speaking to people afterwards. They told me that that's what they were most curious about and most interested in and, and what sort of stayed with them most. There's a debate about being like super, super neutral and non-interpretive. I think much more for um, film or TV that you can't outright say what someone is thinking or feeling Mm. You have to sort of allude to it and allow people to draw their own conclusions. But that can be tricky because there's not always time for the listener to sort of piece all that together before moving on to the next bit. And in theater, I would say where you have the luxury more of kind of doing your own thing, I would say do as much work as you can for the listener and go ahead and interpret as you see fit. I think it can be only helpful if you bring your knowledge to bear on the subject. I know my Shakespeare and things like that. So if there's any way that I can be forthcoming with some of that knowledge, I've gotten the most positive feedback when I have interpreted what I think the costume designer, the set designer is doing, you know, not just saying the what, but the why. Okay. I think that kind of sticks with people and kind of helps their experience. How what a designer's choice is bringing something out of 
out of the text or subtly underscoring something that's happening or how uh, the color story of the costumes, you know, brings out something about the relationships between the characters. Any way you can sort of interject that, I think, will help people's experience. And also, if you are able to talk to a designer or direct someone involved in the production, like, you don't always have... You hardly ever have that luxury in a professional environment, but like maybe in the school for school production, if you can speak with people involved in the production and ask what they're trying to get across and what things, you know, they want the audience to take away from it or why they made that choice or why this is appearing on stage, why this prop, why this color, why this backdrop. And if you can convey that to your listeners, I think that's a good idea. I love how Jill seamlessly talks about infusing her knowledge and skills into her work to create an exceptional artistic experience for those who are blind. Although many of us have listened to audio described movies or TV, I wonder how many have experienced theater description. My takeaway is remembering to recommend that our students try it out and even seek it out when they can. From TSBVI Outreach and A Sense of Texas, I'm Emily Coleman. See you next time. This has been a presentation of the Texas School for the Blind and Visually Impaired Outreach Department. If you have any questions or suggestions for topics to cover in future episodes, please contact us at podcast at tsbvi.edu.